BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. When Sally Yates was acting attorney general, she refused to defend the travel ban on Muslim-majority countries. Reproductive rights attorney Bridget Amiri represented teen migrants denied abortions. Both are among the women lawyers, Dahlia Lithwick profiles, in her new book, Lady Justice, the lawyers that she says fought the racism, sexism, transphobia, and xenophobia that flourished during the Trump presidency. We'll talk to Lithwick about how women are harnessing the law to advance civil rights, even as the Supreme Court and state legislatures work to curtail them. Join us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Dahlia Lithwick's new book, Lady Justice, profiles the women attorneys who fought to protect constitutional democracy and safeguard the rights of the marginalized during the Trump administration. And they continue that fight as state legislatures implement post-Obs abortion bans, and the U.S. Supreme Court takes up cases about elections, affirmative action, the environment, and voting rights this term. Dahlia Lithwick, so glad to have you on with us. Thank you for having me back, Mina. And I do want to get your assessment of the Supreme Court. I mentioned some of those cases, and I'm so glad to have you back to talk about it because it has been described as, again, a potentially very far-reaching and consequential term, as consequential as the last one where Roe was overturned. But this time for our elections and for our democracy. So would you mind talking about the election case that's coming out of North Carolina, just to start us off. It's called Morvie Harper. And what the court is looking at there? Yeah. And I and I even might start one beat back and say, I think that all the attention to Dobbs and abortion last term meant that folks could have blinked and missed that there was a massive gun case that came out. There were several huge, huge religion cases that came out. There was a case that kind of hobbled the EPA's ability to uh, regulate clean air. So last term was huge, not just because of Dobbs, but because of a whole raft of 6-3 decisions. And you're quite right. uh, We've got everything else uh, teed up for this term. And probably this Harper case that you're you're, uh, referencing is the biggest of them all. In some sense, it's existential. And essentially, what it is, is a case that comes as a result of a North Carolina gerrymander, a a map that's drawn uh, pretty deliberately to dilute uh, the votes uh, of uh, uh, Democrats. And uh, it's, you know, this is a, a 50-50 state that has been gerrymandered to the point that it would be like 10 to 4. 
And it's challenged in the courts and goes uh, all the way up to the state Supreme Court. And uh, the determination is that, yes, this is a partisan gerrymander and uh, we need new maps. And the state of North Carolina advances the argument. It's called the Independent State Legislature Theory advances a very, very, very striking and consequential argument, essentially saying that state legislatures from now on have plenary power under uh, the Constitution to set every part of election law, and that not only can legislatures do that, but it's unreviewable, uncheckable uh, by state courts, and there's nothing that uh, the state executive branch can do either. So in a sense, I think the best way to explain Moore v. Harper is if this case is uh, signed off by the U.S. Supreme Court in uh, uh, by the end of this term, and we already know there are four votes uh, that are very receptive to this at the Supreme Court. If they pick off a fifth vote, we will see states doing the kinds of things that Don Tr Do Donald Trump and his lawyer John Eastman were asking Georgia and Pennsylvania to do after the 2020 election, which is just for the legislature to substitute its own judgment about who won. And that will be catastrophic, not just in the states, but for democracy writ large. Right. And as you say, without any ability for the state's courts to check the legislature in doing that, it just helped me understand this theory, this legal theory of independent state legislatures, the independent state legislature doctrine. Isn't this something that has been presented before, but that has just been that interpretation by the state of North Carolina has been has been essentially rejected by courts, higher courts and the Supreme Court for centuries? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. And I think you're right to sort of use air quotes, or at least I heard them around the words theory and doctrine, um, because these are not well-established, long-standing constitutional doctrine. And in fact, uh, there's very, very good uh, text in history suggesting that this idea would have been anathema to the framers. Uh, in some sense, this a lot of this is kind of cooked up in think tanks. It's cooked up in some parts of the legal academy. And Oddly, it's rooted, at least in this iteration, in um, a Chief Justice Rehnquist uh, opinion from Bush v. Gore. You may recall that was the opinion that was supposed to be good for one ride only. It only commanded three votes. It was not uh, the opinion of the court. But that now is being held out as though that is somehow dispositive that, you know, Bush v. Gore um, reinforced and reified this idea that state legislatures have unreviewable uh, plenary power over elections. And so I think this is one of those things that it gets dressed up in black robes and it gets called a doctrine or a theory. And then there are citations to what seem to be majority opinions, but in fact are not. Um, and it all gets sort of shoveled out into the world as though maybe there are two legitimate sides to this. Um, I should also just note that this is such a disastrous uh, possibility that we had the chief justices, the conference of chief justices, which is not uh, an entity that, you know, from state supreme uh, 
uh, courts that gets itself involved in writing amicus briefs, uh, wrote a brief in Moore v. Harper essentially saying, look, we are the most non-political entity in the world, but this would be a catastrophe um, that ousting state courts from determining and reviewing election laws under their own state constitutions would be a complete dismantling of uh, of uh, judicial power and state power. So it is not uh, an idea, I think, that is has a lot of support, as I said, both in text and history or in doctrine, or even among state Supreme Court justices who think that this is their prerogative, but whether they can find one more vote at the U.S. Supreme Court to bless it nonetheless is really one of the existential questions this session. Hmm. Well, let me ask you about another court Another case that the court is considering from Alabama called Merrill v. Milligan. Could you tell us about this voting rights case? Right. This is, you know, folks will remember that uh, the Supreme Court has already uh, severely eroded the power of the landmark Voting Rights Act in a case that was called Shelby County. And then just a few years ago, uh, there was Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act that was the best way to get relief um, from voting rights, uh, racial gerrymanders and voting rights violations. And the Supreme Court, in a case called Brnovich two years ago, did an awful lot of work to make that also inoperative. In a sense, this case, Merrill versus Milligan, an Alabama voting rights case, uh, is going to be the test of whether there's anything left of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act anyway for um, people who have been uh, subject to unlawful racial gerrymanders uh, are going to be able to go to court and do something about it. So in short, this is uh, an Alabama new map uh, that was drawn uh, to make sure that um, it's called packing and cracking, the way you create a district where you either smush all uh, the Black voters into one district so that you uh, dilute their vote, or you spread them out so much so that they have no power in other districts. This is an Alabama gerrymander that uh, a lower court said clearly uh, violated uh, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, uh, and uh, the state was ordered to draw a new map. Uh, But the Supreme Court already stayed that order in February, and now the case itself comes before the Supreme Court. And I think it's, again, of a piece with this larger trend we're seeing at the Supreme Court that you described uh, in your introduction of slowly, slowly eviscerating uh, voting rights and voting rights protections, particularly for communities of color that had used the Voting Rights Act to protect themselves. Yeah. And while the case is pending, essentially, since the Supreme Court wants to review it, they are saying, the U.S. Supreme Court, that Alabama state officials are not required to redraw the map. So basically, it will be in effect in the midterm election? That's right. Uh, They stayed the order and said, uh, as they have been wont to do, that there is a doctrine that holds that you can't kind of, states can't fiddle with maps too close to the elections, but they've been using it in a way that 
chiefly seems to help uh, Republican officials in states with their maps. And so I think one of the issues here is, um, again, the Supreme Court has been, and we saw this in the 2020 election, very quick to jump in and stop some things, very reluctant uh, to do other things, and no meaningful, consistent principle of how they apply that doctrine other than it seems to pretty consistently advantage one side. And you talked about how the Roberts Court, um, through Shelby and so on, has essentially, as you write, worked hand in glove with states trying to turn voting into an obstacle course. But you also point out that just there is this sort of corrosive view now that an election can and should be overturned. Do you want to, just before we're coming up on a break, talk about what role you think that is playing also in in the way that we are are treating these cases about elections and so on as valid? Well, I think I would say two things. One is that, you know, the Voting Rights Act has a long and storied bipartisan uh, tradition uh, to remedy past wrongs. And when the court again, sort of blew it up in Shelby County, they did so by saying, you know, oh, we don't have a problem uh, with race inflecting on elections. We know that's wrong. And we know that's wrong in part because states rushed to enact uh, new uh, uh, race uh, related regulations immediately after Shelby County. But I think your larger point is the more worrisome, which is the the court, by even suggesting that it's willing to insert itself into future elections, is essentially, again, doing the thing that Donald Trump asked them to do in 2020, except now they're going to be doing it with the imprimatur of doctrine and theory behind it. And that really is worrisome, not just for the election, but for the integrity and respect for the court. We're talking with Dahlia Lithwick, senior editor at Slate, who covers the courts and the law about two major upcoming Supreme Court cases. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with your questions about those, but also who you think of. What women do you think of on the front lines of fighting for our democracy? Because that is a big part of Dahlia Lithwick's new book, Lady Justice, which we'll get more into after the break. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Tomorrow, we'll focus on the direction of our state Supreme Court and sit down with Chief Justice Tani Kentil Saka Uwe, 
What would you like to ask her? You can leave it in a voicemail at 415-553-3300. This hour, we're talking about the women who fought against the Trump administration, even when the odds were against them. And that is the subject of Dahlia Lithwick's new book, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. And you, our listeners, can join the conversation if you would like to share just what moments of resistance by women stood out to you during the Trump era, or if you have any questions about what's happening with our U.S. Supreme Court, as Dahlia Lithwick also, as senior editor for Slate, covers the courts and the law and is also host of the podcast Amicus. You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, and you can call us 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. And Dahlia, just before the break, we were talking about the cases that are so dangerous for our democracy to depending on where the Supreme Court goes with them. And of course, when you think about democracy, when you think about women fighting uh, for our democracy, one of the first people that comes to mind and who you profile in your book is Stacey Abrams. You write, quote, in a book about women lawyers who make change about fame and not fame, about insiders and outsiders, and about law versus power, Stacey Abrams struck me as an exemplar of all of the above. Talk a little bit about why Stacey Abrams was such a such an important person in all of this and how she handled it all. It's a, it's a great question. And I think maybe it's important to note that the book ends on Stacey Abrams. It starts with Sally Yates, uh, who was the acting attorney general when the travel ban came down uh, and who refused to enforce it and was summarily fired. And in a way, I think the the arc of the book that I wanted to sketch out was going from, you know, this singular heroine, Sally Yates, who was very much, you know, was white, uh, a Georgian, a third generation lawyer, you know, someone who really had an immense amount of cachet and power within the institution of the law, within the Justice Department itself. And then to sort of spread out. And so we, you know, at some point we meet Vanita Gupta, who was at the leadership conference doing organizing. We meet uh, Roberta Kaplan, who was um, fighting the Nazis and white supremacists who marched in Charlottesville. And I wanted to land on Stacey Abrams exactly because of the section you just read, because Stacey Abrams is somebody, I think, who has eschewed the idea that being famous is the best way to do law, has really rejected the notion, the simple notion that law is just trials and courts and what you see on TV and law and order. I love that the book arcs to her and this massive coalition of black and brown women and religious groups and other leaders all of whom are using the law in a way that every one of us can use the law. In other words, it's not about power. It's not about privilege. It's not about whether you went to law school or not. I wanted the book to land us in this moment we're in now, where every single person in Michigan who's getting signatures on the ballot to protect abortion, all the women who voted in Kansas, uh, you know, those people actually are the Lady Justice of my dreams as well. And so I think for me, Stacey Abrams is a really good example of somebody who could have, you know, been a, a contender for vice president, who could have been uh, on the Supreme Court and who wanted none of those things, just wanted to go back to Georgia and do the work of fighting voter suppression and fighting election denialism. And to me, that is 
kind of a really wonderful story. Also, I think a woman's story and a renunciation and a rejection of the idea that if we all just sit back, Bob Mueller's going to come around to save us. I think we have to save ourselves. And I think Stacey Abrams for me is an exemplar of somebody who's doing that work years, years, years later. Yeah, she so reminded us of the power of voting. And then, of course, the results in Georgia and the power of those results to to change the course of a nation and whether or not that that change will remain and be substantive is an open question, one that you really do leave us wondering about <laughs> at the end of the book to some extent. But at the same time, as you say, um, looking to the models for for what what really matters and for taking and seizing the power that we have, and and in Abram's case, the power of the vote. I think that's right. And I think it's really struck me, Mina, just in the past week, looking at the protests happening in Iran, that it's very easy to say it's exactly the same, you know, that women are are burning uh, their headscarves and they're marching and they're protesting. And it's easy to say that that's the same thing we're seeing here. But I think that that leaves out a big chunk of the story, which is in this country, we actually do still have the rule of law. We're not in thrall to clerics. There is no morality police. And so even though I think it's deplorable that women in prison in Alabama, because the state has decided they're endangering their pregnancy or women incarcerated in Oklahoma for fetal endangerment. And that's horrifying. And that's certainly something I think we have to reckon with. But the fact is, we do have all these levers of the law. And the women in this book are not just, you know, protesting. They're actually changing the world. They're picking up the machinery of the legal system, whether it's Robbie Kaplan and Karen Dunn dusting off the KKK Act uh, to fight Nazis in Charlottesville, or whether it is, you know, uh, Becca Heller using uh, the refugee laws that we have in order to protect refugees after the travel ban. So I think it's just really important to understand when you give up on the rule of law and you say, oh, you know, the court is now the only you know player in town and we've lost, that we have so many engines of law around the country and so many highly skilled practitioners. And I don't think we want to give up on them yet. Yeah. You mentioned Sally Yates earlier, too. And I mean, talk about pulling on the levers of the law and and the Constitution as well. First, could you talk about just remind us what Sally Yates did, the travel ban that Trump tried to enact and how Yates fought against it? One of the first loud voices against a Trump executive order or policy. Uh, Sure. I mean, Sally Yates had been at the Department of Justice. She had been seen as pretty much a a centrist um, and very much an institutionalist, one of those lawyers' lawyers. Um, She was the acting attorney general under Trump until presumably Jeff Sessions would be confirmed. And that's a pretty standard kind of nothing job. I think in the chapter, she says, you know, I was looking forward to long lunches and nothing happening. And yet in the first days of her job, unbeknownst to her, because she was never asked to vet it, the Justice Department was not advised of it. But this Muslim ban comes down that is barring travel from a bunch of countries which are majority Muslim countries. And Donald Trump had explicitly run promising he would do that. 
And as you said, uh, she was shocked. She didn't realize this was coming. She looked at the law and she felt that it was both a violation of religious freedoms that are protected in the Constitution and of uh, due process that is protected in the Constitution. And she said, I can't defend this and I'm not going to send Justice Department lawyers out into courts to defend it. And as folks probably remember, she was fired very quickly after taking that position. And I hold her up both as an example, like we were talking about, of an institutionalist who believes in the law and in institutions and who really fights for them because there's several lawyers in this book who are much more dubious about institutions. But I also hold her up as an example of something we should have seen a lot more of, which is people in the Trump administration who were asked to do completely unconscionable, inappropriate things. And very few of them quit. And a bunch of them were fired and a whole lot of them wrote tell all books and made a lot of money. And Sally Yates did none of those things. <laughs> she just stood up for what was right. And in my view, a lot more people should have done exactly what she did. Well, let me play actually an exchange between Sally Yates and Senator Ted Cruz during a May 2017 Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on Trump's travel ban, because I think you could really hear Yates' conviction here. Ted Cruz speaks first. Are you familiar with 8 U.S.C. Section 1182? Not off the top of my head, no. Well, it, it, it is the binding statutory authority for the executive order that you refused to implement and that led to your termination. So it, it certainly is a relevant and not a terribly obscure statute. Mm -hmm. By the express text of the statute, it says, quote, Whenever the president finds that the entry of any alien or of any class of aliens into the United States would be detrimental to the interest of the United States, he may by proclamation and for such period as he shall deem necessary suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens as immigrants or non-immigrants or impose on the entry of aliens any restrictions he may deem appropriate. Would you agree that that is broad statutory authorization? I would, and I am familiar with that. And I'm also familiar with an additional provision of the INA that says, no person shall receive preference or be discriminated against in issuance of a visa because of race, nationality, or place of birth. That, I believe, was promulgated after the statute that you just quoted. And that's been part of the discussion with the courts with respect to the INA, is whether this more specific statute trumps the first one that you just described. The, but there, my there, concern was not an INA concern here. It rather was a constitutional concern, whether or not this, um, the executive order here violated the Constitution, specifically with the Establishment Clause and equal protection and due process. Hmm. We're talking with Dahlia Lithwick, uh, senior editor for Slate, who just wrote a book called Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. One of the women she profiles is Sally Yates, Acting Attorney General Sally Yates. And we just heard her exchange with Senator Ted Cruz over Trump's Muslim travel ban. Um, go ahead, Dahlia. I think you wanted to jump in. No, I just wanted to say that was in the law dork land in which I reside. <laughs> that was just such a beat down. And that clip of her doing that went viral. I love it for two reasons. One, because it was a beat down and I just enjoyed it thoroughly. But I also love it because it really signals kind of what I'm arguing here, which is, holy cow, this person knows the law. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things that you talk about was that 
that Yates came to deplore, I think you say, uh, over the course of the Trump era, how quickly everyone seemed to go, quote, numb, as you as as uh, I think she describes it, seemed to go numb. And I guess I'm curious why you think Yates herself did not go numb. Well, in some sense, I think she had the benefit of being one of the first. And so it was all very real and very raw. And she was right in the midst of it. In fact, she was having ongoing conversations uh, at that time with uh, White House Counsel's Office about Mike Flynn, uh, who uh, she felt had compromised U.S. security. Uh, so she was really in the thick of it from the beginning. But over the years, she very persistently has said in speeches and in podcasts that she was deeply alarmed at how quickly we could all normalize that which was intolerable and abhorrent. And her number one concern was that we stay awake and keep looking and not let ourselves say, oh, well, this is just what it is. And I think that the book a little bit ends uh, with me worrying that because the 2020 election didn't end with a coup uh, and that the coup that was attempted uh, seemed to be contained, that it's really easy for us to go numb and say, hey, look, all the systems worked, everything was perfect. Um, as that Moore v. Harper case that we talked about at the top of the show suggests, that's just far from the truth. It is very easy to repurpose and weaponize the law to harm everyone. And we have to be vigilant about it. And I think that's the thing that Sally Yates is asking us to do. Yeah. I was also struck by this where you say, we know that because until relatively recently, the law insisted that women couldn't have their own credit cards. The distance from Sally Yates' grandmother to Sally Yates isn't long enough to lock an illusion, to lock in illusions of perfection. That means if there's mold and dry rot in the castle walls, we sometimes smell it first. So, so what do you think women's relationship as a marginalized entity, I guess, which is what you're addressing here with they couldn't even own their own credit cards not that long ago. What do you think women's relationship to the law is? I think it's complicated. I think that in some sense, we have taken for granted that abortion's never going to go away. The Supreme Court's never going to overturn Roe. You know, if women can get into law schools, then they can be at the highest echelons of the legal profession. Uh, I think we have time and time again slightly gone on to screen save and told ourselves it's all fine. It's all good. You know, those uh, ucky days of the 19, you know, 60s and 70s when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was having to hide her own pregnancy so she wouldn't be fired from her job. That's long gone. And at the same time, what we've learned, I think, most specifically with the overturn of Roe this year, is that none of it is long gone, uh, that things that we thought were in the way distant history happened relatively recently. And we can all ask our grandmothers <laughs> about the day they could own their own credit cards. It wasn't that long ago. And so what I want to say is that if you read the Dobbs opinion, Justice Alito is quite content to say, oh, well, you know, abortion's not in the Constitution, so you're out of luck. But of course, women didn't have the vote. They were not part of ratifying <laughs> the, the, the Constitution, uh, the um, Reconstruction Amendments. They had no place in this conversation. And so to say, well, you know, we didn't anticipate that you'd have any power, so good luck to you, doesn't feel very satisfactory to women who feel as though if they had participated in drafting those documents, they might look very different. And so I 
it's a double-edged sword. It's both a certainty that we had shattered after Dobbs, but I think at the same time, it's a knowledge that, oh, if they can use the law to take things away, we can use the law to get them back. And I think we're seeing that all over the country right now. So it's not a hopeless story, but it does require a purposive, focused, and in some cases, highly technical understanding of what the law can still do. It was really important for you to talk about the women who were doing the work, not necessarily making the headlines, but doing the work. Why do you think that so few of the women who are doing the work, their names are known? I mean, I think part of it goes back to an amazing essay that I cite in the introduction by Rebecca Solnit that was written around the time that I was first imagining this book. And she said that the American need for heroes, largely male heroes, you know, the John Wayne type with the white hat and the big horse, sometimes precludes us from action ourselves. We just wait for someone to rescue us. And I certainly remember we all thought Bob Mueller was going to rescue us and then Merrick Garland was going to rescue us. It's a, it's a very, in some sense, cowboy narrative. And I just became really obsessed. And a lot of the introduction is about Polly Murray, who is one of the preeminent legal architects of both race and gender equality as we experience it today, who's been almost forgotten by history. And so I think I wanted to point to the flaw in the thinking that if we all just sit around Merrick Garland's going to rescue us. But I also wanted to counter-program it with this narrative about the women who for decades, for centuries, have been toiling away to get the vote, uh, to get the ERA, to get reproductive rights, to achieve equality. And we may not know their names, but we are in debt to them. And we should be lifting up their stories because I think they're the ones who are going to save all of us. We're talking with Dahlia Lithwick about Lady Justice, her new book about women lawyers fighting the important fights. Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. And if this is reminding you of moments of resistance that stood out to you during the Trump era, go ahead and share them. If you have questions for Dahlia Lithwick, you can do that by emailing forum at kqed.org or posting them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or by calling us 866-733-6786, We'll get to those after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Dahlia Lithwick, senior editor at Slate, who covers the courts and the law and also hosts the podcast Amicus. Her new book, Profiling Women Lawyers Who Fought to Protect Our Constitutional Democracy During the Trump Years, is called Lady Justice. Before the break, Dahlia Lithwick, you had briefly mentioned Polly Murray. And I would love for you to say a little bit more about what we do owe this person whose name has practically been erased. Well, I would start by saying everyone should watch the amazing film. My name is Polly Murray, uh, which uh, came out uh, a year and a half ago and really changed the way I thought about everything that came after Uh, Polly Murray. um, And I'm always careful to say, I think if Polly Murray were still alive, um, she might want to be called they. She very strongly believed herself to be um, a man who was trapped in a woman's body, but that was long before there was real language for that and acknowledgement of that. But Polly Murray was Black. Polly Murray was uh, at least presented as a woman, and every single door that could have been closed was closed, couldn't get into the law school of their choice, couldn't get into the college of their choice, and nevertheless managed to do some of the most seminal social justice and equality work in American history, uh, wrote the book that became the Bible of the civil rights movement, according to Thurgood Marshall, wrote for a law school paper, uh, uh, an argument that became the spine of the argument in Brown versus Board of Education, and was credited by Ruth Bader Ginsburg on a brief that Polly Murray didn't write, but the work was credited on a brief that becomes one of the first challenges using the 14th Amendment uh, to achieve gender equality. And all of this happens, and Polly Murray refuses to move to the back of the bus, gets, you know, Rosa Parks gets the credit. Uh, Polly Murray was desegregating lunch counters. So basically just five beats ahead of history at all time, uh, and yet we've forgotten Polly Murray largely. Thankfully, the movie, I think, is trying to correct that. And so just going to those conversations that you and I had right before the break, for me, Polly Murray becomes emblematic of who gets famous, who gets remembered, who does the work, who toils in the vineyards for decades and doesn't get credit. And the ways in which the story we want to tell about heroes saving us all is just completely misaligned with the reality of how justice and the law change. And so Polly Murray, for me, is an avatar for some of the women in this book and the tens and thousands and hundreds of thousands of women around the country who are all doing this work, sometimes without recognition. Because I think that, again, those are the stories I want to tell. And those are the stories I think people need to hear. Yeah. Let me go to Lucinda and Sausalito. Hi, Lucinda. Hey, good morning. I, this morning, actually got out a pen and paper and started writing out um, to update my will. And one of the things that I would like to donate to is uh, social justice and reproductive rights. So I'm wondering, obviously, other than KQED, who your speaker would recommend to donate to? What organizations? What nonprofits? Dahlia Lithwick, do you have an opinion on that? I do. And Lucinda, I'm very 
stoked that you're doing that because I think it's one of those things that people are loath to do and needs to be done. Um, I would say that a lot of uh, the reproductive rights work that needs, desperately needs um, funding right now are abortion funds or state abortion funds that are trying to make it possible uh, for people in the various states to get uh, abortions. So I think uh, look up abortion funds and you will find um, uh, really worthy places. But I also really want to say that I think the ACLU, who I mentioned in the book, and their reproductive rights wor work, Whole Women's Health that I mentioned in the book, um, you know, NARAL, so many incredible, incredible groups doing this work. And I think really the essential thing uh, that I would say for you is that this is a long, long, long fight. This is going to take decades. And so I'm sure the groups are more grateful than ever that you want to do this because this is not going to get resolved in a week or a month. Well, Lucinda, thanks so much for the question. So there is a name that you've brought up multiple times, uh, Dahlia Lithwick, throughout our conversation, and that is Robbie Kaplan. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what she did with regard to bringing cases against the neo-Nazis at Charlottesville at the Unite the Right rally. So this is, uh, I should start by saying it's personal. I lived in Charlottesville for 17 years and yes. I was there in August of uh, 2017 when white supremacists and Nazis and other agitators came to this very sleepy college town with you know, flaming torches, uh, some of them armed to the hilt. Uh, seeking to incite violence, and in fact, inciting violence that led to the death of Heather Heyer, uh, famously who was hit by a car, but to severe maiming and injury for other people in town. And so it was very personal. And Roberta Kaplan and Karen Dunn and their incredible team of lawyers filed a suit exactly, and this goes to Sally Yates, because the Justice Department wasn't investigating this as a hate crime, because the Justice Department wasn't even looking at what had happened in Charlottesville. And Donald Trump famously said there were very fine people on both sides of the Nazi protest. And so they just stepped into the void and it took years. They filed in the fall of 2017. The case did not go to trial until last November 2021. So that was a four year slog. But they managed to get a $26 million judgment against the organizers and some of the participants who put that, um, that uh, riot together, that invasion of Charlottesville. And again, I think it speaks to so many of the themes we've talked about. You know, one, they dusted off the KKK Act, which is, you know, a really arcane statute that they were able to brush off and repurpose to bring these folks to justice in a civil lawsuit. But also that it took them years and there were threats and both Robbie and Karen would show up to depositions and it was miserable and some of these Defendants in the case were dropping their phones in the toilet uh, in response to discovery requests. They were just straight up heroes, in my view, and didn't get nearly enough credit or attention. And so I think this is another one of those stories of stepping into the void, finding a statute, getting uh, a judgment that really actually did chill, I think, and, and uh, scare uh, Nazis from anything like that in the future. And I think it's something that took years and they did it anyway. And so for me, it hits all these themes of sort of how women do justice. 
Yeah. You, you said that this is personal in part because of Charlottesville. I also want to ask you about another personal experience that you share. And, and this is related to Judge Alex Kaczynski. First, can you just remind us who he was? Yeah, he was the chief judge of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and that's the federal appellate court that includes uh, California and a bunch of the Western states. And he was a remarkable thinker and speaker and a really, I think, prodigious legal talent. But he was also kind of notorious uh, for showing porn to law clerks, for talking to women in ways that were seen as inappropriate. And it was kind of a quote unquote open secret on the Ninth Circuit that this was how he behaved. And it was allowed to go on for years and years and years without investigation, without anything really being done about it. Uh, it affected the book insofar as uh, a few women finally came forward and said, this is what he said to me. This is what he did to me. Uh, and it forced me, who had known about all of this for decades, uh, both as a former law clerk, but as somebody who had covered the court, to end up writing a piece also saying, I knew about this, I did nothing, I went to the panels and the parties, um, I benefited from the relationship. And so it is, that chapter is a pretty painful meditation for me personally, not on Me Too, but on complicity and how the reason that people who harm employees or women can be allowed to sort of do what they do for years on end is because we don't all of us take responsibility to say that has to stop. We leave it to a handful of victims and we thank them for their bravery and do nothing. Yes. The, the aloneness of that, uh, the also, you know, when you were talking about how Robbie Kaplan is still subject to threats or to just mistreatment um, is really incredible and the extent to which ultimately the the thank you is we believe that this happened to you, but there really isn't anything we're going to do about it. Um, can you just talk a little bit about what what that means to you and, and how that pervades so much of how we do justice in cases related to women? I think you you said it exactly as I would, which is we love to say, oh, I believed Anita Hill. And we love to say, oh, I believed Christine Blasey Ford, right? Even Chuck Grassley said he believed Christine Blasey Ford. Susan Collins believed uh, Christine Blasey Ford. And we give that as though it's like a participation trophy, right? Thank you for your courage. We believe you, but nothing's going to change the system's uh are never reimagined. There's never a moment of real reckoning. And so one of the key figures in the chapter uh, about Me Too and how we've progressed is Anita Hill, who has been doing this work for decades. And she doesn't want this to stop with I Believe You. In fact, Christine Blasey Ford in a podcast with Professor Hill said, uh, nobody, when you say your name, nobody says I believe you. <laughs> That's not an answer. We need legal processes. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I, for, I really appreciated that chapter. I appreciated you sharing the personal struggles that you went through um, as a result of it and how the victims are far and widespread whenever something like that happens. And for what it's worth, I'm very sorry that that happened to you. Dahlia Lithwick, her book is Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save 
America. This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations, and you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Remy writes, I always remember this video of moms with babies and carriers storming a New York City INS office shortly after the horrors of family separation became better known. It was the most immediate call to action possible and a reminder that to not act is being complicit. The first mom says, I'm here because if someone took my children, I'd want someone to do this for me. Still get chills seeing it. Do you want to talk a little bit about Vanita Gupta? Or even yeah. uh, if you want to talk about Bridget Amiri as well, just again, two, two women who strongly advocated for the rights of people at the border. Yeah, I mean, Bridget Amiri does it in the context of the ACLU, and she litigates a major, major case that has to do with migrant teens who are being held in government shelters and denied abortions to which they are otherwise legally entitled. Um, and Bridget uh, litigates that case and wins. Uh, Vanita, I put in the book, uh, and she is now the number three in the Justice Department, but at the time she was uh, the head of the leadership conference, and she was doing this essential work that you've just described, which is organizing. So again, I wanted the book to start in courtrooms with lawsuits, because I think that's what we think lawyers do. And then I wanted to land on organizing and protest and changing the law and democracy reform. And for me, I think Vanita Gupta becomes the locus of that move where, you know, she's an attorney, she's tried cases, she's an amazing attorney. She worked in the Justice Department doing that. Uh, but then she becomes kind of an outsider uh, during the Trump years. And all she does is organize and think about power. And so that turn from we have to win lawsuits to no, we need to claw back power is a really essential move in the book. Because as I said, you can win lawsuits and win lawsuits and win lawsuits and still lose. And you can lose if, you know, just going back to the elections case we opened on, your voice is suppressed or your vote is taken away. And so I love Vanita's chapter. I mean, I love Bridget's chapter. I, <laughs> these women are amazing. But I like uh, Vanita's chapter because it's the very invisible, again, uncredited work of women who get up and knock on doors, who march, who protest, who organize, who educate themselves. And that really is the stuff of democracy reform as much as winning trials. Michael in San Francisco, you're on. Hi, I'm a rabbi in San Francisco, and I've been most dismayed about um, how so-called re religious freedom impetus behind the Supreme Court decisions last June are affecting us. And I'm so inspired by what you said earlier, that what's happening at the Supreme Court level isn't the whole story. And I'm wondering, what can we do, the large number of us who are, I would say, like religious faithfuls who are on the progressive end of the political spectrum, um, what can we be doing at the local level and beyond? I think you're probably doing it. It sounds like I think that there are amazing, amazing uh, groups. Um, uh, uh, NCJW, the National Council for Jewish Women, is doing, I think, pathbreaking work uh, doing uh, uh, legal reform at, in every state and uh, around state houses uh, to try to 
give voice to religious groups that don't necessarily agree with the religious freedom arguments being offered at the court. But I think you're exactly right. I think that in the many ways we've been way too myopic and focused on big national stories. And this is the time to think about state races, your state, your governor, your state attorney general, uh, you know, school boards, all the stuff that I think we tend to say, oh, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's, that's kind of the, 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 the shavings left from, you know, whatever we've been carving out of democracy. And it, it's just not wood shavings. I think it's essential. So I would say refocusing efforts and following amazing, amazing leaders who are making the arguments you're making in local and state contexts. Michael, thanks. You say that the female lawyers who've been doing this work for decades, you say this is their playbook. And And I wonder if you had to summarize the most important part of the playbook, what would it be? I'm going to say courage, because I think every woman in some point in her chapter talks about feeling terrified and not knowing that they were doing the right thing. So I think um, courage. And then I just think this amazing trust and faith that even in the face of real, real pressure and opposition, that if the constitution doesn't already protect you, if the statutes don't already protect you, they can be bent to protect you. And I think it's just not losing faith that the rule of law is different from politics. It's objective, it's neutral, and it's powerful. Well, Dolly Lithwick, thank you so much for coming on. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Dolly Lithwick is senior editor of Slate, hosts the podcast Amagus. Her new book is Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America, which profiles the women lawyers who fought to protect our constitutional democracy during the Trump years. Susie Britton produced today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Desert Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.